1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan.
0: Okay, Cass, so we are fresh off of the heels of our episode last week, which was on the costumes of the much-beloved television series and movie, Downton Abbey. So I thought that we might take our inquiry this week downstairs. Yay. <laughs> and by downstairs, I mean into the world of domestic servants. And we're not necessarily going to talk about the, the, the costumes of the servants who were depicted on Downton Abbey. Instead, what we're really going to talk about today is what the real-life men and women wore who were employed as household staff during the ni- late 19th and early 20th century.
1: Yeah, so when investigating this topic, April and I were surprised to find that there was a wealth of information about this, surprisingly, in fashion magazines of the era. Yeah. (laughs) So dressing one's domestics, quote unquote domestics, apparently was permanently a hot topic for decades as employing servants was a much more common practice during this period for not only the rich, but also many upper middle class and middle class families as well. And of course, we know that the profession of domestic
0: service is actually centuries old, that it way predates this time period that we're going to talk about today. But alas, because of the parameters of this being a single episode of the podcast, we have to set a (laughs) beginning and ending date. (laughs) So I think we should probably start in the 1870s cast because I found this really interesting article in Harper's Bazaar, which detailed what the going wages were for servants in England at this time. So, get this. In addition to the room and board provided by her employer, in 1875, a female domestic servant, a.k.a. usually a maid, could expect to make about three to five pounds a year Um, And that could vary a little bit depending on her position in the home. And in some urban areas, she might expect to make a
1: little bit more, up to seven pounds a year. And I'm sure most of our listeners right now are thinking, okay, but what does this mean in today's pounds and her dollars? And I bet April is about to tell us because I happen to know that she secretly or not so secretly takes delight (laughs) in doing historic currency conversions. I
0: don't know why this is so satisfying to me, but it really, really is. And like the harder and the more confusing the historic currency conversions are, it it like makes me happier. But like, for instance, in France, They re-tethered the franc in 1960, so you have to take that into, like, consideration. Like, is the amount before or after? I don't know. It's very fun. So, (laughs) I digress. But the original article that we were just talking about that gave us those rates was actually in the American magazine Harper's Bazaar. So, the figures were in pounds. So, what I did is I took a little stroll over to the Bank of England's website where they happen to have a historic historic conversion tool. And honestly, I didn't know what I was going to find out. I didn't have any expectations about what that sum of money was going to be in today's dollars. Cass, I'm hoping that you might want to take a stab at what you think that meant. I mean, in today's dollars.
1: Yeah. I'm going to guess it's like horribly, horribly low. So maybe like $150 a year.
0: Well, You you actually, yes, it is horribly low. It's slightly more than that. But actually what this turns out to be is about 350 to 600 pounds max today. Or if you convert that into U.S. dollars, that's just under $900 max. And that is per year. We're not talking about per month. That's over the course of an entire year.
1: Well, I guess we know how so many more households have been able to afford staff historically because it was super (laughs) inexpensive. I mean, I guess the thinking was that because these employers were feeding their staff and they're putting a roof over their heads, you know, that they just assumed that servants had few expenses and thus needed less money. I, I, I really don't know the reasoning, but that's what I would surmise. Exactly right. Um, and there are
0: so many sources out there that really kind of talk about this. They they think that for maids in particular, the only expenses that they might incur outside of like living under their roof would be the clothes that they would purchase to wear outside of working hours. And we're going to circle back to that in a minute. But there's this one article in Good Housekeeping from 1901 that kind of really delineates this manner of thinking, it says, quote, many mistresses provide the caps and aprons which their housemaids wear and also the black stuffed dresses, white collars and cuffs, which are now recognized as the official uniform of a parlor maid, waitress or second girl. When this is done, it still further eliminates items of considerable expense from the account of the young serving woman, end quote. So basically, they were kind of like, Hey, we're giving them like food and shelter.
1: W- why should we pay them? What might they even need money for? Right? Another factor that really comes into play here is that many of these domestic servants were immigrants from other countries. So, this good housekeeping article from 1901 that you just mentioned also goes on to note that in the US at the time, most servants were from Ireland, Italy, France, Germany, or, say, Scandinavia. Quote, they come in the steerage, these peasants. With their simple faith and dauntless courage and unfathomable stupidity, and we introduce them into our comfortable kitchens and dainty drawing rooms and suffer many things before we evolve from the raw material, good cooks and waitresses and housemaids. So, you know, basically rich white (laughs) people, rich white people (laughs) as the keepers and teachers of civilization and everything that comes with it. Yeah. And if you really think of that, that's just like
0: the legacy of colonization. Oh, played out. (laughs) Again. And I, Cass, was really taken back when I started reading a lot of this type of like really angry rhetoric in fashion and ladies' magazines during the late 19th and early 20th century. It was shockingly common. You can just feel like how angry whoever that writer was a lot of times. And it's, it's really directed towards the people that were in their employ, and uh, for instance, here's one the, one, of, one of the things that really made me really upset was there was one particular article that had advised mistresses of the house to not let their maids entertain any suitors at the house unless they wanted their home to smell like a stable.
1: Yeah, and another article notes, quote, the servant girl disheartened by repeated failures, ill advised by her friends, unwilling, even though quote, lately landed to accept small wages, lives a week in one house or a month in another, and literally drives her employers out of home domesticity into hotel life through her incompetence and their own. 19 cooks in a season, 65 housemaids in five years, a train of innumerable Ellen's, Nora's, and Katie's, Marie's, passing through her doors in a long, wearisome procession. Is it any wonder that a mistress who has such a record in her memory should have nervous prostration at last? Oh no, nervous prostration. I mean basically what this
0: is is saying that they're like, "Oh darling, my my servants are so annoying. I simply happened to pack up all my belongings and move to the Waldorf Astoria." Like uh, these women are basically like saying like my servants are driving me crazy. I can't deal. You know, I mean it's like 19 cooks, 65 housemaids, Can you even imagine? I mean, clearly this was not the norm for most people. And while the majority of homes that had hired help employed only a handful of servants, things looked very differently for the uber-wealthy. So Cass, might you want to tell us about what that scenario might have looked like for the ultra-rich?
1: Ah, yes. So a well-staffed house at this time might include a butler, a valet or valet, two or three footmen, an oddman, a chef or cook, two or more kitchen maids, a still room maid, which is someone who looked after the preserves and canned goods, and a scullery maid. So as well as a head housemaid, two or more under housemaids, a linen room maid, a ladies maid or maids, and a secretary or secretaries. So we are talking about at least a staff of 16 (laughs) people, if not more.
0: This is already stressing me out. I just have to say. And if children were in the home, there were more servants present. There was likely to be a head nurse perhaps nursery maids, and possibly if there were older children in the house, a governess, a schoolroom maid, and also a children's maid. So basically, the kids in the house in some of these elaborate, really wealthy households had a whole staff of their own. And
1: I'm, I'm making a joke here when I say this is
0: probably how there are certain people that exist in the world
1: who have never made a bed in their life. I mean, you're joking, but there are definitely people who've never made a bed in their life, done a lot of things that um, you and I and 99% of the population have to do, <laughs> Um and we're not even close to being done because that staff may suffice for one's city dwelling, but if it was a large country estate like the one owned, for instance, by the Crawley family on Downton Abbey, that or the Vanderbilts at Biltmore in North Carolina, which is a real house, real family, um, so those that staff might include eight gardeners, two special men for greenhouses and fruit, two boatmen, one coachman, three other stablemen, two chauffeurs, two mechanics, four gamekeepers two estate carpenters, four laundry maids, and three dairy maids, which now raises our total to more than 50 people, many of whom required uniforms specific for their position. And we are going to learn more about that after a brief sponsor break.
0: Welcome back. Okay. If you are scratching your head about how chaos did not reign in households with this many servants and people running around? Well, Vogue actually had an article in 1925 that, quote, trained servants know to an inch where the duties of one end, and those of another begin. Usually the upper servants, maids, valets, or valets, depending on if you're going to say by the American pronunciation or the English pronunciation, have their meals in the housekeeper's room, waited on by an underling, presided over by the butler and the cook, and seated in strict Order of precedence. The underservants eat in the servants' hall under the presidency of the first footman and the head kitchen maid.
1: Yeah, and this is something we see clearly demonstrated in Down Abbey, for sure, that there's really this established hierarchy in households of this size, some servants outranking others, and this differentiation was highly codified in their staff uniforms. So an article from Harper's Bazaar from September of 1899 was really the catalyst for this entire episode. April, you sent me this several months ago, and I think it's safe to say you and I were both captivated by all of these <laughs> distinctions in dress between the housemaid positions alone. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And this is actually before you even had like formally
0: scheduled the Dalton Abbey episode. Like we were already talking about this. So I was like, this is a perfect follow up. But this article has amazing photos, which, first of all, is something pretty incredible for fashion magazines in the 1890s. It also has all these explanations of the proper dress expected for the female household staff, quote, in every well-ordered household, considerable attention is paid to having each servant dressed according to what the best ruling of fashion has decreed, the proper costume. Each and every maid in the house is primarily supposed to have a print dress for the morning and an absolutely plain black cool dress in the afternoon. But it is the apron and the cap that there are marked differences between the cook, the waitress, lady's maid, and the child's nurse.
1: And for any of you who did not pick up on it there, at this time, even the servants themselves were expected to be in fashion and to change their clothing according to each time of day. Um, while the lady of the house might change up to six or seven times a day, her maids changed their uniforms alone a minimum of two or three times a day, depending on their position. Generally speaking, this change of clothing would happen
0: just after the staff had lunch at noon and before luncheon was served to the family, or sometime around 1 or 1:30. 1 and in the morning, quote, the chambermaids and parlor maids in many houses have a color scheme laid out for them. Ladies like plain and checked game dresses and love shades of pink, blue green, mauve, or yellow for ordinary wear about the house in the morning during work hours. The collars, cuffs, and aprons, and caps to be used with these are, of course, plainer than those used with afternoon dresses. So, Cass, really what this is telling us is that we see a progression in the formality of servants' uniforms as the day progresses, just as we do in mainstream fashion at this time. And and I my mind was blown when I started reading about this.
1: Yeah, and I mean Down Abbey and shows like that kind of give us an idea of how this worked, but it's incredible to imagine how highly structured these peoples. Um, both the servants and their employer's days were, that it required all of this formality and all of this like, um, you know, this changing of costume or dress. It's kind of incredible. Yeah, it's like a lot of pomp and circumstance there. Yep, um, definitely. um, (laughs) You know, an extension of the the employer's wealth for sure and status if you had a well-dressed staff. And April, as you noted, it's the stylistic differences between these collars, cuffs, aprons, and caps that really really um, visually relayed one's status within the household. So the lady's maid held the highest position and she was permitted to wear just a touch more finery than the other housemaids. And for those of our listeners who might not know what a lady's maid is, that would be the, the woman who was assigned to getting the women of the house dressed and taking care of their wardrobe. So, her apron did not have a bib at the top, and once she switched to her black afternoon dress, sometimes she was also allowed to wear a black apron, which was considered quite fancy. Um, (laughs) None of the other maids were allowed the privilege of the black apron. And lesser maids, including the chambermaid, the parlor maid,
0: and the waitress, they also wore aprons, but they had bibs, and they were also very slightly different according to their position. The waitress's apron is really fascinating. Quote, it must be much larger sometimes covering the greater part of the dress with a bib and bretelles over the shoulders. And Cass, I had to look this up. I was not familiar with this term bretels, but once I figured out what that term meant, I was like, oh, I know exactly. I've seen that before. So basically bretelles are these ornamental straps and they kind of sometimes in terms of maid's uniforms started at the waist of an apron and then they kind of came up over the shoulder and they had these super flouncy, ruffles and those straps crossed in the back and then they were tied around the waist. I think I think we can all can kind of like envision that. But when I started investigating a little bit further waitresses' uniforms, one of the things I realized is that they tended to be a little bit more playful and fun. And this particular waitress in the article in Vogue, the cap that she wears is more or less this ginormous white bow. That's kind of like been trimmed in black, whereas in contrast, the parlor maid's cap is kind of disc-shaped, and the chambermaid has a wide headband of sorts, but the waitress, I guess, was like dressing it up in all the like flounces and, you know, super fun stuff.
1: Yeah. And again, I just want to say that I know we've, we've given shout outs to Downton Abbey, but they do such an incredible job of showing these distinctions in dress. And now maybe when you're watching the series, (laughs) you'll kind of notice and appreciate how well the costume designers did and addressing this, these sorts of distinctions through dress. Um, So really, really well done. So aside from the lady's maid, the nurse was the other female servant permitted a tad more luxury Quote, a nurse is always to be thoroughly well-gowned. The materials of her clothes are generally a little finer, but the effect is the same. The finer fabrics of her uniform actually served a very practical purpose because another article in Vogue from 1916 notes that nannies wear softer fabrics to, quote, protect the tender skin of her charge. Stiff cuffs and scratches are painfully synonymous.
0: Oh, that's very sweet.
1: And, and we should also probably
0: point out here that these cuffs and collars we keep referring to were more or less removable at this time for ease of laundering. Quote, they must be kept scrupulously clean and made with dirty cuffs and collar, soiled apron and cap are a sure sign of a very badly managed household. So, basically, to to this end of keeping all of their staff neat and clean, mistresses of the house were advised to provide their maids with multiple sets of uniforms. They were advised to give them four sets of morning uniforms and two sets for the afternoon, quote, so that there shall be no question and everything shall always be in perfect order.
1: On this point of neatness, which is a word we see time and again in the context of the well-dressed servant, we also want to point out that these female servants were, of course, corseted at this time, mm-hmm. even up until about 1916, a period when many of mistresses of the house might have been experimenting with, you know, avant-garde, corset-free fashions, the help was still expected to lace. Quote, a maid shall be well-corseted. The large-waisted stays which women wear today is not... To be permitted to the maid while on duty. A well defined waistline gives a neatness and trimness which somehow lends a sense of moral support, and it is always insisted upon by the really particular mistress who understands its value upon the work of the household. So I find this article fascinating because it makes two things very explicitly clear. One, these uniforms are really a form of control, right? Yes. (laughs) and power. So as that quote suggested at the top of the episode, these employers really see themselves as as civilized because of their wealth and status, and they're bringing civility and morality to their immigrant house staff who otherwise would not possess it. So, But this article also shows something we talk about on the show time and again, this power of fashion as a semiotic and relating, you know, both these, you know, variations in staff, of course, and the hierarchy of, of the um, the different positions, but they also relate these societal codes of respectability. So the corseted body, April, is a moral body. Mm-hmm. And that is a sentiment that had literally been in
0: place for centuries. So yes. <laughs> some of you might be wondering about the cost of uniforms at this time. Well. Fashion magazines of the 19-teens were chock-full of advertisements for servant uniforms, and they were really offered at a wide variety of price points. In 1914, for instance, uh, we see uniforms being offered for the equivalent of $26 to $207 today. And I have to say, they were easily purchased from fine department stores of the era, including, to my surprise, B. Altman, Lord and Taylor's, and Wanamaker's. So while you were just shopping for yourself, you could just pop over to the other department and pick up some uniforms for your staff,
1: apparently. So just as there was extensive coverage as to the proper attire for one's maids, men servants get their fair share in print as well. You have butler's footmen, chauffeurs, who were largely the focus of an article in the November 1912 issue of Vogue entitled, Mode for the Man Who Stands and Waits. So that article declares that, quote, The well-dressed butler always begins the day in a high-cut four-button sack coat. Luncheon and the afternoon are spent by a correct butler in a double-breasted dress coat, a high-cut waistcoat, and striped trousers. In contrast to the
0: butler's finery, the chauffeur was expected to be dressed with a quote-unquote military trimness, wearing either a multi-pocket Norfolk jacket or a slightly more formal livery jacket with a slightly asymmetrical front, which was fastened by two rows of five vertical buttons. And I think we can all imagine what that looks like. It's like one, two, three, four, five, right down the body. But this particular article that we're talking about shows both of these styles of jacket paired with jawed furs. And this blousiness of this style of breeches was really, really emphasized by the fact that the chauffeur's calves were encased in tight leather leggings and also tall black Boots. And on the subject of color casts, I have a fun fact because Vogue at this time recommended that the color of the car be considered when selecting the shade of your chauffeur's uniform which is hilarious. They said that it should always be complimentary, but also unobtrusive. It shouldn't stand out too much. So color in the chauffeur's uniform was permissible here, especially if it was added in the context of a small amount of piping on the chauffeur's jacket. So I w- I mean, we can't talk about the chauffeur at all um, if we also don't talk about the fact that he was pretty much always
1: expected to wear gloves and, of course, his signature visored cap. That makes me wonder for all of these rich people at all these different cars. They must have had different um, wardrobes. I wonder if they expected their <laughs> their chauffeur to change wardrobe based on the color of the car he was driving. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, Now the proper attire for a footman was a curious blend between that of the butler and the chauffeur, again, depending on the time of day. So for the footman's morning attire, it was recommended that his ensemble should, quote, be so like the chauffeurs that only themselves can tell which is which. However, for afternoon, the footman, like the butler, changed just before lunch into a more formal suit with either a black and white striped or black and yellow striped waistcoat. And this waistcoat would once again be changed before dinner to a pure white waistcoat. Likewise, his boss, the butler, would also change, switching his striped trousers for black ones, as well as his wing collar with black tie to straight collar and white tie for dinner service. Again, good grooming and neatness are expected
0: of the gentleman as well. Cass, I really fell in love with this quote, which I found in Vogue from 1912. It said, quote, The mark of a good manservant is very well-brushed hair. (laughs) I, I literally laughed out loud when I read that. A butler must have the hair he has, well-brushed, but he need not have as much as a footman because he
1: is older. Oh, yes. <laughs>
0: right? <gasps> right? He doesn't have to have as much hair. He just has to have it well-brushed. A butler should always be over 45, or at least he should look it. A youngish butler is only to be found in a bachelor's menage when he is the one-man servant what is called a valeting or
1: valeting butler. Yeah and the butler of course is at the very top of this hierarchy we've talked about um and you know they've really worked up towards that position that's the idea um they've really worked towards this respect you know this um job of respect, essentially, um, and uh, within this household. So that's, a, I'm guessing, why they would indicate that you would be of an older age to be a butler. I mean, April, it's become increasingly clear <laughs> <laughs> that employers put a lot of thought into what their employees were. I mean, it's really incredible. A ton. And work. Yeah. And while these distinctions certainly served practical purposes in distinguishing domestic staff from one another, I think it's really important that we really acknowledge that they also serve to distinguish the staff from their wealthy employers. So there are very clear power dynamics at play here, which we mentioned earlier. The maintenance of a clearly defined class hierarchy is undeniably a driving force behind the standardization of servant uniforms in the 19th century. And this is something that author Diane Crane writes about extensively in her fantastic book called Fashion and Its Social Agendas Class, Gender, and Identity in Clothing. Apparently, April, this sort of level of attention to uniforms did not really exist before the 19th century. Crane writes that, quote, changes in
0: servants' clothing in the 19th century corresponded to changes in the nature of the relationship between middle and upper-class wives and their servants, which became less intimate and more authoritarian. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, middle-class housewives performed substantial amounts of the work necessary to maintain a household, end quote. So, Therefore, these the mistress of the house really kind of shared a sort of camaraderie with their household staff. And this all changes in the 19th century when the propagation of ideas of the quote-unquote ideal wife, free from domestic functions, resulted in more and more women seeking to quote, create visible status boundaries
1: between themselves and their maid servants. And while certainly these uniforms were a distinction of class, April, um, in America, at least they also became a distinction of race. And in her book, Living In, Living Out, African-American Domestics in Washington, D.C., author Elizabeth Clark Lewis writes that after 1900, quote, the uniformed servant became one of the most visible and valued signs of a white person's social arrival. She writes that by the 1920s, most domestic servants in the D.C. area, but I'm sure this applies across. America, that most of those domestic servants were African American. And as Crane points out, quote, the persistence of servants' uniforms in the United States in the 20th century can be explained by race and ethnic differences as well as by social class. So now we are moving into the 20th century, and more on that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. Moving into the 20th century, we see a growing number of articles on the subject of what to do with fewer and fewer servants. Oh my, April, what a (laughs) predicament. I know. What are you going to do?
0: Because really, up until this point, we've really been discussing these truly extraordinary households that had dozens of servants. But what was it like at this time for, you know, the more middle class, I'm just saying?
1: Yeah, and it wasn't terribly uncommon for an upper middle class household to have perhaps five people on staff. So a cook, a kitchen maid, a parlor chambermaid, a ladies maid, and perhaps a valet chauffeur um, slash chauffeur or some permutation thereof.
0: By the 1930s, we see outright angst over the perceived decline of this tradition of full-time Domestic servants living in your house. And and we see it expressed in fashion magazines, which was like, it really kind of blew both Cass and I's mind. The economic downturn of the Great Depression was only the first of the death knells that were told for this dwindling practice of domestic servitude. Many families were forced to cut their staff down to only two or three servants at this time. And there's some really, really fascinating articles out there detailing about how households should run with this new reduction of help, basically.
1: So if one must do with less, it was recommended that the staff now consist of a combination of a cook and a chambermaid, preferably both women, as, quote, any combination of women always allows for more ladies' maid service. By and large, it was considered inappropriate for male servants uh, to perform some of the most intimate duties required of maids. April, a while back, you sent me the recommended schedule for households now operating with this reduction of servants, and I thought it was pretty interesting, interesting enough that maybe we should read through it.
0: Yeah, yeah. We should definitely read through this because it definitely gives all of our listeners a bit of insight what might happen next as we move into the 1940s as like we further this discussion. But it also gives you like a, this really interesting insight about what your day-to-day life was like if you happened to be a domestic servant.
1: So, okay. In 1936, if you only had a cook and a chambermaid, it went as such. And I'll do the cook-waitress bit and you can do the chambermaid, okay? Yes. Sounds good. In the households of three or four run on the cook-waitress and chambermaid plan, the following might be typical schedules. So for the cook-waitress, for instance, 7.30 a.m., breakfast for maids. 8 a.m., breakfast for family, 9 to 11.30, cook interviews mistress, menus are decided and written, lists made for marketing, dining room cleaned, kitchen tidied, Um, cook goes shopping, Uh, noon meal for maids, 1.15 is lunch for the rest of the house. 3.30, the kitchen's cleaned, the dining room's put in order, cooks should have until 4.30 to rest and dress for dinner, Um, 5.00 p.m. tea or cocktails are served, 5.30 meals for maids, 6.00 to 6.30, the living room's put in order, and then 7.30, the evening meal is served. And then within an hour, by 8.30, the meal's finished, the kitchen's put back in order, and these women and men end their day at 9.30. So that is a 14-hour workday. Yeah. So the schedule for the chambermaid is a
0: little bit different. It's not wildly different, but at 7.30, they had breakfast, which was cooked by the cook, obviously, of the household, and they cleaned their own room. At 8 o'clock or after, serves mistress breakfast if necessary. Her morning duties will then be regulated by the time the mistress dresses and leaves the house, but between 8 and 12, She will clean the bedrooms and living rooms, brush clothes worn the day before, clean shoes, arrange the closets, etc. She starts this work immediately after breakfast. 10 to 10.30, prepares bath, lays out clothes to be worn, assists mistress to dress, and does the room. 12.00 a.k.a. noon, has her lunch after lunch until 4 o'clock. She has time for washing personal effects, counting laundry, mending house linen, pressing— Four to five, on duty to answer telephone and front door, which, cast? side note, we've already done this whole episode about calling culture in the past, so I think that's what they're referring to here. If you're receiving visitors, your chambermaid was expected to be the servant to answer the door. But... Between 5 and 6.30, she should have her time off. After this, she should put away her mistress's day clothes, prepare tea gown and or evening clothes, and while the family dines, she prepares the bedrooms for night. She puts out nightgowns, wrappers, slippers, etc. 8.30, unless there an
1: entertaining, her duties are now over. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, these are incredibly long days, as I mentioned, 14 hours. Um, And of course the cook and the cooking staff are up way earlier preparing breakfast for all these people. Yeah. So, you know, this meant she's working in the kitchen by 7 a.m. at the latest, probably much earlier, I would guess, um, depending. And her day ends at 9.30 p.m., 14 and a half hours, Day. And servants typically worked six and a half days a week. Six days a week, if they were lucky, they would get a day off. So that's more than a 90 hour work week in some cases. And the chambermaid um, had it only slightly easier at a 70 hour work week. And as we discussed earlier, they're making $300 a year. Like, come on. Yeah.
0: And, <laughs> and you better bet that on those days off, they were ready to bust the heck out of there and get out of those servant uniforms. And decade after decade, we see all of this in print in terms of like fashion and ladies magazines condemning housemaids on the topic of them frittering away their wages on their personal wardrobes that they wore only when they were able to, like, escape their mistress's household. And, and and it was always kind of, like, framed in this manner of, oh, the help is trying to imitate us, you know? So, again, this class conflict here is really evidenced in the press again and again, um, largely by moralists who endeavored to make sure that the servant class stays in its place.
1: That being said, by the 1930s, some aspects of dress for domestic servants had relaxed quite a bit. So, as shifts in the fashionable silhouette of each era occurred, dress for female servants followed suit conservatively and modestly. So, hemlines rose and fell, sleeve shapes changed, and waistlines wandered, as we all know. Um, The color combination of black and white remained always proper, but increasingly, color was introduced for maids. Uh, Afternoon attire, for instance, was now sometimes gray or lilac instead of black. And some households even went so far as to create custom uniforms that specifically coordinated with the decorating scheme of their home.
0: (laughs) And Cass, this is like one of the quirkier things that I read about when I was getting all into this. Okay, so this coordinating your staff uniform with your household decor may have stemmed from one of the most famous interior decorators of her era, the socialite Elsie DeWolf. And apparently in the 19-teens, later in the 19-teens, she bucked tradition entirely and dressed her maids as she felt best suited the interior of her home. And she outfitted them in prune dresses with gray aprons, which were adorned with prune ribbons, and they were gray caps with white linen collars and cuffs. And if that's not enough, um, there was yet another socialite who was not about to be outdone. So she created custom golden brown uniforms for her staff. And, of course, this complemented her home. And, and at this point, she really upped the game because – According to the New York Times, she only hired redheads to be on staff. Oh, jeez. Because they, like, completed this tonal color palette that she was trying to achieve. And the New York Times says, fancy having to choose between the coloring of hair and complexion versus the skill as a masseuse or an obliging disposition. So— You know, people
1: as decor. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (gasps) Um, I'm glad you brought up the subject of hair here because this brings up the maid's cap. So starting in the 1920s, female servants began to push back against wearing caps, citing the fact that they were unnecessary and they served the sole purpose of marking their servitude. By the 1930s, it was such a contentious topic that it was recommended to potential employers that this matter be broached during the interview phase and not to be surprised um, if candidates rejected an offer or employment simply over the matter of wearing the maid's cap. So people are starting to get a little Little bit of autonomy here,
0: yeah, absolutely. And and remember, Cass, when I said earlier that the Great Depression was just the, the first death knell signaling the demise of this widespread practice of employing household servants. Well, now we're at the point where we're reaching the second, which is World War II. So, as men left to engage in the war effort, the posts left behind them on the home front. In industry and civil service, were oftentimes filled by women, as we already know. We've already talked about this on the show many, many times, but a lot of these women had formerly been domestic servants.
1: Yeah, in 1945, Vogue quoted one Lily Radcliffe as saying, quote, The wartime loss in household workers was about half a million. If the post-war return of workers to domestic service is valuable to the community as a matter of health and well-being, as I believe it is, then the work should be made attractive to the most competent workers coming from war factories, and that responsibility is up to women employers, end quote. So Lily, once a children's nurse, had parlayed her wartime work experience to become a doctor's secretary.
0: And really the point that we're trying to get at here is that women now saw that they had other options,
1: right? You know, during the
0: 1940s, the New York Times, again, estimated that between 20 and 30% of domestic service labor moved on to other types of jobs. Vogue again, quote, Now that all women have a wide choice of jobs, women have chosen almost anything but domestic. Living out will be much more prevalent from now on. Employers who have lately been doing their own housework have been recompensed in some way by feeling free in their own homes. Maids who have been on war jobs in factories now know what it is to feel free in their own homes, too. They know... That when they arrive at work from outside, even though they may have had a very long ride in a crowded subway train, there is a different feeling from that which accompanies getting up every morning in another
1: woman's house. So, with this new agency, those within the service class, and we should say, of course, that they're speaking exclusively, I would guess, about white women in the yeah. service class. So, those within that service class are demanding reforms, and they're telling potential employers to expect no more than 48 hours a week from their staff and to give a minimum of 1.5 days off a week. You know, so reasonable requests here. One employment agency owner told Vogue, quote, any employer waiting for the good old days to return, meaning that unemployment would force women back into domestic service on the employer's terms, is going to get a shock. This former maid who is now working in an industry under good working conditions has new ideas. I have begun to see how uncompromising and how demanding the employers used to be in matters about which the maids have never dared to kick before. So
0: Cass, if if this holds... Like, thing in the 1940s got kind of like got the ball rolling. It was really the technical innovations of the 1950s that may have been the proverbial nail in the coffin in terms of the widespread practice of employing domestic servants. In June of 1955, the New York Times published an article which was kind of wonderfully entitled (laughs) The New Quote Unquote Servants. Machines and Husbands, and then it goes on to, like, the subtitle, which is, Ye Old Time Helper is an Extinct Species Replaced by Gadgets, Both Human and Otherwise.
1: Quote, the mass moves to the suburbs, the DIY wave and the income upheaval that has turned America into one great middle class have all been diagnosed as major social changes of this decade. The changes promised by automation have been thoroughly probed too. But another change that is closely related to all of them has has crept up, not only uh, exactly unnoticed, um, but unweighted and unmeasured. It is the passing of personal service from the American home.
0: And this article really goes on to note that fewer than 200,000 American families had 100% of domestic duties cared for by household staff. And they are noting that as like a marked change. And also another change is that now apparently only 15% of domestic workers lived in. And when we say lived in, we mean like they lived in the home of their employer full time. So this sudden shift in the daily execution of domestic work was greatly aided by modern technology versus human labor. And that's the kind of like change that we're talking about that happens in the 1950s.
1: The New York Times writes, quote, no doubt, many of the newly made lists have discovered half the things that they used to pay servants for no longer have to be done, not by hand at least, or not at home. Industry has taken them over, not one industry but several. As washers and dryers, dishwashers, and vacuum cleaners come into the commercial market, the drudgery of housework suddenly seemed a novel game for some. Quote, now that housework can be done by pushing buttons, even husbands have developed a taste for it. And that was a quote <laughs> from the New York Times. I I
0: laughed out loud when I read that one. So also this rise of prepared and frozen foods at this time is also noted as, quote, one of the outstanding factors in the change sales of frozen foods have tripled since 1950 and are still rising. And Cass, we have to remember that at this time, home freezers were definitely not at all the norm. Um, They were basically a relatively new phenomenon at this time, and they had only been put into mass production immediately after the war, which was only a handful of years earlier before this article. So when you combine that With the innovations in textile science, which created wrinkle-free and stain-resistant fabrics between the 1930s and the 1950s, housework started to veer off this path of domestic service and into this realm of domestic science. And when you add also onto that the fact that there was this rise of teenage babysitting culture in the 1950s, that also solved this occasional need for childcare. So, Never before had, you know, domesticity ever
1: seemed so modern as it had in the 1950s. The New York Times proclaims at the end of its article that, quote, personal service has already become an anachronism. Maidless living is one aspect of the DIY movement that can be counted on to endure, end quote. And for the vast majority of us, this remains the case, although a recent New York Times article estimates that there are more than 2 million domestic workers in the U.S., which is quite a lot, but it only accounts for approximately 0.6% of the American population's so, basically, less than half of the percentage employed as domestics even after the massive decline of the 1940s. And, of course, this is just in the U.S. and not anywhere else in the world. where I'm sure it's a little bit different.
0: Yeah, and that's 0.6, like not even 1%. So, the vast majority of domestic workers today wear their own items of clothing when they perform their duties, um, with the exception um, a lot of the time of home healthcare workers who often wear scrubs. And in some particular households with full-time housekeepers, some employers might require them to wear these kind of like comfortable cotton house dress uniforms that are easily laundered. But really, by and large, the strict dress code of the 19th century, it's largely days of yore. But I have to say on a highly personal note, I used to do some part-time work for a really major art collector here in New York City, and she actually had a full-time staff of four people. She had a personal assistant, a chef, and a husband and wife team who kind of like oversaw a lot of the other household duties. And her housekeeper, Lila, who I adore, she generally wore these really brightly colored A-line flare dresses um, that she purchased from a uniform supply store. She always wore sneakers, uh, but every once in a while for a big party or a big event, only if Lila was feeling especially sassy, because I don't think that her employer ever asked this of her, Lila would bust out her black dress. (laughs) with the white collar and cuffs and and she looked so amazing and smashing in it. It was always a little bit of a thrill for like all of us and everyone at the party and I think even for Lila that she was wearing it. So I just have to say, it's not as if the tradition of the black and white maid uniform is dead. It's definitely still a rarity, but it is alive and well today sometimes.
1: Well, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider how the legacy of workwear expresses itself in your closet next time you get dressed. Please join us this Thursday for our mini-sode, where we answer your listener questions and or keep you up to date on the latest in fashion studies. If you'd like to submit a question for a future fashion history mystery mini-sode, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com or DM us on Instagram, where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. As
0: always, a special thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. (music) Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.